It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome back to the show, Amelia Pollard, who reports on distressed debt for Bloomberg News in New York. How are you, Amelia? I'm great. Thanks so much, James. We're also delighted to have Mike Campalone, who covers retail for Bloomberg Intelligence, also in New York. We'll be coming back to Mike shortly. Lots of fascinating stuff going on in the retail and consumer sector right now, so do stay with us. But first, Amelia Pollard with Bloomberg News. Distressed debt. You had a great story this week on struggling companies who are finding a lifeline. New money to keep them alive a bit longer, but they're going bust anyway. Investors are essentially giving more cash to doomed companies and they're not making anything better. In fact, they seem to be making it worse. Deck chairs on the Titanic, Amelia. What's going on? What's the situation? Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect way to describe it, James. And many people I spoke to while reporting the story said that these deals, which are known as liability management transactions, the most jargony buzzword out there right now, um, are essentially basically just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And the reason why um, lenders have an incentive to give new money, money is that these are existing lenders that are already in the capital structure. So they already have skin in the game, so to speak, and have a big incentive to try to keep the company afloat. And these deals, um, known as liability management exercises or transactions, um, they're referred to both synonymously, um, basically our last ditch efforts to buy the company time. So what we've seen in recent weeks though, is that a lot of the deals that happened in 2020 and 2021, and even as recently as last year are starting to unravel as you know, the pain of high interest rates and waning consumer spending um, is really not, is not helping the situation for these companies and they're not able to turn things around in the way they had hoped to. So let's just stop for a minute and, and look at it sort of in more broad terms. Liability management first, that sort of sets off a load of jargon alarms in my mind. Um, what does it mean? Just taking some debt and um, refinancing it with new debt, maybe longer maturity, maybe cheaper, or what, 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 is, it, what is it in basic terms? Yeah, basically it is, um, 
you know, t getting new, the company gets, receives new money in exchange for either pushing out maturities or, you know, kind of making some kind of arrangement that gives the lenders uh, a benefit. And typically what we've seen in recent years is these, these deals have been around forever, but the most recent breed of these deals are pretty contentious. And you often see a group of lenders left behind and often they're so pissed off that they will sue the company or the other lenders um, and beca becomes a very big dramatic mess very quickly. Um, but there are two specific types that have become exceptionally popular and forgive the moment of jargon, jargon but I will explain both of them. One is an up-tiering transaction. Um, and that's something that we saw the, the mattress maker Serta Simmons do in 2020. And essentially all that means is that a group of lenders agrees to give new money in exchange for being bumped up in the repayment line. So given the worst case scenario, if the company files for bankruptcy, they will be the first ones to get paid back. And in here, testimony from executives um, for these funds who had given new money or weren't able to give new money, um, some of them said that their base case scenario was that Serta would eventually file for bankruptcy. It just did not, the writing was on the wall, they had too much debt, um, you know, the industry itself was hurting. And so they wanted to ensure that they were in the best position when that did happen. Um, and we've seen a number of deals since Serta in 2020 kind of replicating the structure of that deal. Um, and then the other one that has become very popular has been something known as the drop down. And this is something that J. Crew pioneered a few years ago. And it essentially strips collateral from a group of lenders and backs a new group of lenders. And it's often the most valuable collateral. Um, you know, so whether it's a subsidiary, in some cases, we saw um, something like that with Envision Healthcare where a subsidiary was kind of used as new collateral that was seen as highly valuable by lenders. Um, and so those two types are the ones that, those two types of deals are the ones we're seeing unraveling. And in some cases, it's because so much litigation has emerged, as in the case of Serta, where the companies really are left with no option but to put the company in Chapter 11. You mentioned that it's got worse over the last couple of years. I'm wondering why that is. I mean, is it that companies are getting more desperate because of the macro environment? Is it the uh, advisors and lawyers are getting more creative in, in you know, finding solutions? Is it um, the fact that none of these deals had any covenants in the easy times? What's, what's the reason for it all, all coming to a head now? Yeah, well, you, I think you just listed the big three. Um, that, you know, those are all reasons why this is coming to a head now. And I think we start to see we started to see some of these really crop up in 2020 and early 2021 the era of easy money um you know it was it was easier to get new money in that at that time and but now we're still seeing it's still popular and it was still popular last year as the economy started to tighten a bit and um you know credit markets were not as readily available with new money and so companies were we're increasingly tapping existing lenders to get new financing. And um, that's what we've seen here. And then, you know, I wrote this story just on the heels of two big filings um, that had liability management deals under their belts in Cora, um, which is an aerospace supplier, and also Diebold Nixdorf, which is like one of the biggest ATM makers in the world. Um, and so I think that we're starting to see these deals are essentially a bet that the companies will be able to turn things around with interest rates as high as they are. Um, they haven't been able to do that. But it's essentially good money after bad. I mean, they're just um, throwing money down the pan because they're already involved in the situation. They're hoping to get some kind of benefit in the longer term. What's, what's, the, what's the play? Yeah, the play is basically just bettering their position. So, um, 
you know, one thing we saw with Serta, for instance, the, the mattress company, is that the two different groups of lenders were basically giving the company competing contentious offers of how to reconfigure the debt. And once one group caught wind that the other group was, you know, pitching a very contentious um, plan as well, they were like, okay, well, we need to, you know, put together our own prop proposal so that we can get ahead. Um, and so it's a little bit of a race to the bottom as well, in which lenders are kind of, um, you know, pushing each other to get, um, you know, the, the best in the best position in, in case of a default. And I think that that's what we're seeing where lenders, if lenders have a base case of a default in place, I think they're trying to ensure that they're in the best possible position when the repayments start for creditors. Do we expect more of this? I think so. I mean, there there were a lot of liability management deals in the last couple of years, um, and it seems like, you know, professionals are only cooking up more breeds. I, th I think that up tiering and drop downs are, you know, the only only two of the types of you know kind of contentious deals that are emerging from this era. But I sh I'm sure there will be more. It seems like you know there's every time that you know a new clause or, you know, sentence or two is added to these credit agreements to block, you know, an up-tiering deal or drop-down deal, um, you know, there's always some legal gap that lawyers will find. Is there a pattern to it? Is it uh, related to a particular sector or kind of deal? I mean, is it all retail? We're going to talk to Mike uh, Campalone a bit in, in, uh, about retail, but is it is it mainly in one sector? You know, it's not. It's that's something that's interesting about these kinds of deals. It's so... Um, it's so diverse in the types of companies and that do these sorts of transactions. And I think that's really evident. And, you know, just the two that we saw last week or two weeks ago now um, with Encora and the Bold Nixdorf that, you know, any company that has a lot of debt is going to try to do one of these transactions. Is it mostly private equity backed companies, do you think? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there is um, a sponsor component to this. Um, I'm not sure how much those sponsors are driving these sorts of deals. But in CERTA, for instance, um, you know, there there was some testimony from um, their P sponsor um, during the bankruptcy hearings and their role in kind of facilitating and helping to uh, field interests from lenders that were proposing these sorts of deals. So they definitely play a role. Um, whether or not they're soliciting these kinds of transactions, I'm, I'm not sure. And when they end up in bankruptcy, what you're um, saying in your story is that they're actually making them much more complex and much more messy. They're also all, all ending up in Texas. So I'm interested in why that is as well. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they love Texas. <laughs> I think maybe all of the filings have been in Texas so far um, this year of the ones that have liability management deals, or at least the vast majority. Um, I think it started actually again with CERTA, not to bring up CERTA for the fifth time in this call, but... Um, Certified in Texas in January, and um, the bankruptcy judge there, David Jones, has been kind of a pioneer in blessing many pieces of this uh, highly controversial transaction. And the most recent one came only this week, in which he said that the um, deal was made in good faith, and that was one of the arguments that the spurned lenders was making was that the deal breached this implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, which basically means that the intent of the original credit agreement, um, you know, was not to have this, so this sub, sort of subverted transaction down the line. Um, and so the fact that Judge Jones has been so willing to kind of step in and, you know, make sweeping decisions um, and basically 
established case precedent in the process has attracted a lot of other companies to the venue. So he's being easier on these companies, is he? I mean, for, on the, from the investor standpoint. Well, some would say, some would say he's being easier on the companies. I mean, I think that, you know, any bankruptcy court and judges' um, main prerogative is for the company to survive. Um, you know, and so I think that that's that's really the goal here. And I think that they he presumably saw the litigation as a um, you know a barrier to the company's survival and. He cited the fact that the other group of lenders had proposed an equally contentious um, type of deal. So, you know, they were they were very re ready to do their own type of transaction, and only because they were left behind were they so pissed off. Okay, but um, this doesn't always end badly, right? You mentioned J. Crew earlier; they're still in business. Um, how can this um, come to a happy ending? Yeah, there are some success stories. Um, one that we saw was with uh, Board Riders, which is a surfwear um, retailer. They um, did a, a contentious deal in recent months and they were ultimately bought by Authentic Brands, which is, I think they agreed to buy them in March. So that, you know, that a sale out of court is would be seen as a success by many. And I think that um, whenever these deals are proposed or lenders are interested in doing this sort of transaction, they'll point to success stories like this. So, um, you know, I think that we, we cited a study from Fitch that's out of 30 types of these kinds of deals, um, 24 amounted to a default or a bankruptcy um, down the line. So, but, you know, there are, there are six that didn't. And um, lenders and companies will keep on pointing to those as, as reasons why it might be worth it in the end. But mostly bad. So far, so far, mostly bad. Unless you're a lawyer. Yeah, I'm, I'm for sure, unless you're a lawyer or any professional retained for these kinds of deals. So before we talk to Mike Campbellone at Bloomberg Intelligence, what's the next big story to watch on your beat, Amelia? I think the next big one is the fact that a lot of the companies that we've seen file for bankruptcy this year have been ones that have been you know, highly, very telegraphed in. Um, they've been names that have been on our radar for months, if not years, and you know, have had a huge amount of debt for a long time. I think something that'll be interesting in the broader market and economy is if we start to see pretty healthy companies pivot quickly um, into a distress situation. And I think that will be evidence that interest rates are, you know, really starting to bite in a way that is cause, causing severe repercussions. Um, and the other thing that we're looking at is just how commercial real estate is being impacted right now by interest rates. That's one of the biggest, um, you know, industries or sectors to have distressed debt right now. And I think that will be a story that will play out for the rest of the year. Great stuff. Amelia Pollard from Bloomberg News, thanks so much for joining us. Read all of Amelia's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Thanks so much for having me, James. So as I mentioned earlier, we're glad to have with us Mike Campalone, who looks at retail companies for Bloomberg Intelligence. How's it going, Mike? Hey, James. Thanks for having me on. So in retail, what's the outlook? How strained are consumers right now, given such high inflation, rising rates and a recession coming? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've been looking at recent credit card transaction data and it's showing consumers continue to pull back on retail spending. And while their preference for experience related categories continued, that pace has actually started to slow. So furniture, sporting goods and clothing accessory stores um, all within retail experienced the greatest demand driven contraction that we've seen in that data. You know, more generally, retailers across subsectors have warned of an increasingly more pressured consumer, but we've certainly seen more red flags from auto part, home improvement, and select apparel retailers as well, 
um, especially those catering to a, a lower income earning consumer. Um, retailers have given us a fairly consistent outlook for 2023, which includes pressure both on the top and bottom line in the first half of the year, with some of that pressure easing in the second half. You know, easing freight costs seem to be the largest contributor to a retailer's improved tone in the back half of the year, um, and we expect uh, to see that as well. So um, you said consumers are kind of pulling back across the board. Is it is it away from discretionary or away from sort of, you know, nice to have and more back to what, what people need to have right now? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, after 1Q earnings, um, some of those themes that uh, retailers uh, have expressed to us at the beginning of the year um, have really held consistent with our expectations. You know, some of those themes include inventories realigning. So as supply chains and product costs decline, um, and, in 2022, we saw inventories uh, were extremely blo bloated, as you may remember, um, and as demand and timing were significantly out of sync. So we're seeing that rebalancing start to happen. Uh, the second theme, uh, freight costs are easing, like I said earlier. Um, that's going to benefit retailers who import from Asia the most. Um, so we've seen spot rates pushed lower, which has enabled some re re uh, retailers to renegotiate annual shipping container contracts uh, that they typically hold in the spring. Um, and that's why we're going to see that benefit, uh, that freight benefit in the second half of the year for most names. And then lastly, uh, the weakest subsectors last year within retail um, are going to see the greatest improvement this year. So department stores, apparel and footwear and value sectors uh, will benefit from this more conservative inventory planning um, after substantial markdowns last year uh, to clear that excess inventory. It's interesting that bricks and mortar seems to be coming back. People actually want to go out to shop now. Uh, so, yeah, so, um, you know, I think how retailers are differentiating themselves and, um, you know, what they've learned from the pandemic is uh, the physical store remains extremely important. And that's both from uh, an in-store shopping experience um, and also leveraging physical footprints uh, that retailers have to bolster their uh, logistics and distribution networks. So stores are still important, and it's more about store uh, footprint optimization uh, than getting rid of stores completely. And as part of that, I mean, you're going out to, to shops because you couldn't for so long. Is it sort of revenge spending, as we've been calling it? Yeah, you know, there, there was definitely that theme of revenge spending um, and people wanting to just spend money uh, that was built up during the pandemic, whether through stim, uh, you know, stimulus fueled uh, money that people were receiving um, or just this desire to do things and shop again. So um, we've seen that revenge spending on goods definitely pull back and it's still lingering um, around in the travel and experience sector. Um, but like I said earlier, we're starting to see those trends fade. So it has to come to an end. I mean, obviously, it's, it's um, the, the pandemic has been, you know, it's, it's supposed to be over now, although everyone's wearing masks again because of the uh, air quality. Um, but the, um, the the idea that, you know, there was this boom, eventually it fades. Is it is it going to just go to, to zero? I mean, are we going to just see a big, big drop off in, in consumption, do you think? Um, you know, I think it's unique to the subsectors within retail. You know, one one space, uh, you know, particularly where there's been a, a lot of shift in spending and also in credit profiles is the is the department stores. So, you know, it's uh, the department stores are an absolutely interesting space uh, within retail for us from a credit perspective. And we've seen drastic changes in some of these companies profiles um, for the names we cover. So Macy's, Kohl's and Nordstrom um, just over the past three years. So. Macy's has done an exceptional job delevering its balance sheet. It's reduced funded debt by over $2 billion over the past three years, 
It's pushed out near-term debt maturities with no significant bond maturities over the next five years. And it has a capital structure that's mainly unsecured. Uh, the company's Polaris initiative has also started to benefit the company's margins that have historically lacked peers uh, pre-pandemic. And we expect that trend to persist for Macy's this year. You know, Nordstrom continues to face operating challenges, especially with its rack business. Um, we think that um, these issues will continue to extend pressure on its credit profile over the near term. And the company has 250 million of bond maturities in 2024 that also need to be addressed. You know, and then lastly, moving on to Kohl's, um, I think that name has seen the most drastic negative shift in its credit profile over the past three years at a time where probably execution risk is likely at its highest with new management in place. So Kohl's had a financial policy last year that prioritized shareholder returns via buybacks, which approached almost $700 million for the year. And that's despite the company generating negative free cash flow during that time period. Um, so, you know, definitely a shift in spending across different subsectors of retail, um, department stores being a very unique space within there as well, um, both from a, a consumer spending shift um, and from, you know, idiosyncratic credit risks that exist within some of these names. So a lot going on there. But so regardless of the quality of the product and the experience and all that stuff and, and, you know, whether you love the store or not, it really does seem to be more about how, how the companies have managed their balance sheets, right? In terms of like, you know, we're suddenly in this, in this much, much higher rates environment. Abs so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we could not agree more with that. We uh, are preferred names that have prioritized cleaning up the balance sheet last year. And that's just putting them in a better position this year uh, from a capital allocation standpoint. Um, and being able to deploy capital, even if it's more limited, uh, deploy capital in the right places like uh, investing in stores and capex. And so how are they differentiating themselves, um, you know, particularly in the context of credit quality? Yeah, um, so, you know, that definitely uh, names are differentiating themselves uh, by you know, investing in the physical store, like we were saying, um, like we were saying earlier, and leveraging that store um, for their distribution network. Um, and then, you know, second, from the type of business that the, that this retailer operates in, um, you know, like we were saying, there's so many different subsectors within retail. So um, how a, how a retailer is differentiating itself via its product offering and its store experience um, is really making a difference. So something like a uh, an off-price retailer like TJX um, is really benefited, benefiting from last year's inventory glut, and they're able to secure a larger surplus of branded products at a lower cost. So both improving the company's margin profile, offering consumers a lower price point option um, at a time where wallets are already being strapped. So um, both a, a, a combination of uh, a capital allocation, historically prioritizing the balance sheet and continuing to invest in, in into the company's business um, and store footprint. And then also this differentiating the, the the product and service that the retailer offers. Let's talk about the risk though, Mike. I mean, since we're credit guys, um, Amelia Pollard from Bloomberg News was talking about the stress um, generally, and we've seen a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of defaults, um, and a lot of them have been in retail. Um, a lot of them have been happening over the last few years. Is there more of that to come? Yeah, so um, I was actually uh, reading a, a recent S&P report that was uh, similar to Amelia's story, and, um, and it was pointing out that uh, consumer discretionary actually has topped the list of sector, sectors with the most bankruptcies this year um, in, in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, we've definitely seen some notable retail bankruptcies this year, um, including Party City and Bed Bath & Beyond, um, who both filed for Chapter 11 uh, earlier this year. And that was a combination of 
weakening consumer demand, higher costs, and then really unsustainable debt loads. Has it been cleared out now or is there more of that to come, you think? Yeah, we think that there's still risk for obviously highly levered sponsored owned retailers and who operate in uh, segments of retail that are um, super con- concentrated in uh, 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 product offerings that are fading away. So whether it's you know home improvement, auto parts, um, and even some apparel retailers. Um, so that kind of combination of a very uh, specific business segment that the retailer operates in and sells products out of, um, and uh, just high debt loads that are unsustainable, uh, you know, could uh, uh, could continue that trend of retail bankruptcies. So again, you mentioned household names like Party City. I mean, those those would seem to be good businesses. Everyone wants a, a party, but um, just purely because they didn't manage their debt properly, they're they're blowing up. Yeah, yeah, blow, and, yeah, blowing up. And I don't know if you met uh, a pun intended there. The helium, <laughs> the, the helium shortage uh, actually <laughs> was a, a big driver of that that bankruptcy uh, uh, for Party City as well. So yeah, a combination of just business risks and unsustainable debt loads. So where do you see the value right now, Mike? I mean, in terms of, um, you know, what would you say is a good um, credit pick or, or um, what, what's a pan? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a little shameless plug for our um, BI credit picks and pans reports that we put out on uh, multiple times throughout the year. So absolutely check those out um, to all our listeners if you haven't. But um, from a relative value perspective, uh, at the beginning of the year within our uh, BI credit picks and pans report, uh, and specifically for retail, um, in our picks, we included Macy's, uh, TJX, and Target um, as, sort of the, as some of the names that could outperform. Um, and some of the names that were on our PANS list uh, were VF Corp uh, and Under Armour. Um, and uh, we kind of stand by those uh, uh, those views that we outlined at the beginning of the year. What's VF? Uh, VF Corp is the owner of uh, brands like Timberland, Dickies, um, um, it's a, a really a, 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 a conglomerate of a portfolio of brands um, that has had a historical um, uh, emphasis on uh, buying and selling brands and managing its portfolio consistently. So we, you know, we've kind of pointed to some of the risk associated with that name, um, just in how it d- does business in that sense. Um, but then also a growing debt load it has to fund. Uh, an unfavorable tax decision related to its 2011 acquisition of Timberland um, that uh, uh, it had to fund with all debt. So just higher debt loads and already aggressive business um, just is increasing risk for that name in our view. And Under Armour, that's an interesting one. I just see people wearing that everywhere I go. So why, why is that not doing so well? Yeah, so Under Armour has had challenges that it's faced even pre-pandemic, and it's really struggled with just turning around that business uh, since then. You know, the the, the prior CEO abruptly left, uh, I want to say last year. So we have new management in place and that's just even pushing event risk higher for the name. So um, challenges there that were pre-pandemic um, are, are now even under more of a microscope with new manage- management in place. So absolutely a, a show me story now. Thanks very much, Mike Campalone of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of his great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out. And we hope to see you back on the show soon, Mike. Thank you so much, James. And thanks again to Amelia Pollard from Bloomberg News. Read all of her great distressed debt scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.